Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Curland, and I'm the author of Clicker Training for Your Horse and other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And this week, we're also joined by Michaela Hempen, who's one of my Click to Teaches coaches. And last week, we were talking with Michaela about single subject design, and we left with the cliffhanger of we were going to talk about a study Michaela has been doing on cribbing. But I think, Dominique, you had a question about single subject design before we jump in straight into the cribbing. Yeah, I did because, so I understand, I mean, I I thought the subject was really fascinating and looking at behaviors, intervention for my animals, I can see many possibilities working with this kind of study, but I'm confused about something. So we talked about the poison Q study uh, last time and where there was just a few dogs, three dogs or one dog, I don't remember exactly. How can it be valid to explain the poison cue? I understand why it would be valid to explain the behavior of one subject. That's clear to me. But we have used the study of the poison cue and we've extrapolated it and used it as a law almost of how we should be with all our animals. How can it, how did that happen? How can it be valid? Well, we didn't talk about the, the part that follows. So what you do is initially you start with... Let me, let me interrupt before you jump in with that. So let's do a quick, very quick 30 second review of what single subject design means because we've just been thinking about it together but there's been a week between for, for people and we may not remember what single subject design means <laughs> yeah all right so maybe the distinction um, uh, between group design and single subject design what most people are familiar with is group designs so you would have uh, a specific group a and a specific group b and you have uh, one one of them is the control group and one of them is the one that you are testing. You do your intervention, you take your measurements, you take averages, and then you compare the two groups and you draw your conclusions from the results. To make this somehow valid, you would need large groups that represent the total population. So you can't test the total population, so you have to narrow it down to a representative sample, which is the group design approach. In single subject design is has a different um, focus. It's focused on finding a solution. So it's um, as it's used in the field of applied behavior analysis. So they try to find a treatment for a patient. So in that approach, you, you want to have the flexibility of adjusting your experiments. And the individual is acting as his or her own control instead of comparing to another individual. So you, are, you, you establish the same scientific principle of control and intervention, but instead of doing population-based with taking averages, you stay with one individual 
and compare a baseline. So a certain condition, you are measuring the, the behavior or, and then you would change the conditions with the same individual under changing only one criterion and you go back to the first. So the individual itself is a control to um, assess whether your intervention has had an effect or not. That's okay. So, yep, that's perfect. So getting back to Dominique's question. Yeah. So if you have, um, say you, you run uh, some experiments with an individual and you were lucky enough to actually identify an intervention that has the wanted effect, the desired effect. And the next step would be that you recreate the same with an, another individual. So you have written down your, your protocol and hopefully you have kept all the notes and then you would take the same protocol and apply it to another person, you know, having maybe the same behavior patterns and you repeat it. That's repeatability. That's also a scientific approach. So can you repeat and the yes. same, the same would be done actually with group design. So you would have to repeat it. So another group of researchers would, would repeat a group design. Whereas in this case, you would maybe have the same group of researchers, but they do it with another individual and you repeat that and you do that maybe another four times. So you have a total of five individuals. If you are still successful with your protocol, then you go to another level and you can say you give it to another group of researchers, you know, applying that protocol and that all increases the validity of your results. Or you would, uh, the other group of researchers would do it maybe under different settings. So you were doing, in your previous first genuine research, you were doing it, original research, you were doing it, for example, with children in a classroom. And then another group of researchers would do it with teenagers under a work environment. You know, you change conditions and if then it still works, your validity gets even stronger. So you start with an individual and if this works, you repeat that with different individuals that have the same issue and then you go bigger basically. And that the more you do, the more validity your, your conclusions have. Well, certainly in terms of the poison cues, enough of us have seen it with their animals that we know how valid it is. You know what else that makes me think of is, is clicker training. So. You know, I started with a study of one, with Peregrine, and I, and I experimented with clicker training and really liked it. And so I shared it with the clients I was working with. And we were, had, in a sense, similar conditions because these were horses that I had a long history with, and we continued to like it. And then I started sharing it with people through writing articles about it. So through the internet and through clinics and so on. And so we started looking at broader conditions, exactly what you were describing. And now we have horses all over the planet, different ages, different breeds, different handlers, different environmental conditions, different living conditions. And we know that clicker training just works magnificently for horses. So that it followed very much the pattern that you were just describing. It's kind of fun. So, and with the poison cue, so they, that, that study was, it wasn't so much that they were looking for an intervention, but they were asking a question. So it's a little bit different in that they, they created the poison cue in that little poodle. So they created the poison cue conditioned 
and they also created the then condition. And then they would go back and forth between those two conditions. So it's a different type of study of one uh, single subject design. You had talked about last week in the reference that you read on the single subject design that there are many different types of studies. So would, would we say that this, the poison Q study, certainly in the, in the second part of it, they used the reversals, the A-B reversals, when they were testing the, the Venn effect and the, and the Punir effect. But actually in that reversal, when, because um, they're learning, because that's part of what happens too, once they have learned something, you know, um, you were talking about cells the last time that learn different things and that all cells do not behave the same way. But I wonder too, when you're doing these researches, if some learning has occurred, well, it may change the subject. Um, yes, yes, it does. And um, that's exactly why this approach is, you know, superior in a way um, for these purposes, because in a, in a group design, you are comparing different individuals that have a completely different learning history. At least in an individual, you know, in a single subject design, you look at the same individual. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. all the other things remain the same, only the learning occurs. Right. So right. You, you are reducing the variability quite a lot. And actually, um, so, some of the designs also take that into account. So they are for, for different study questions, you would have different designs, you know, to address. There's not only ABAB, there's many more than that. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. <laughs> So let's let's look at the study that that you did with cribbing. Yeah. So first yeah. we need not everybody knows what cribbing is. So could you give us a little bit of the background on cribbing, why it's a concern and what some of the interventions people have done in to try and reduce or eliminate cribbing. Yeah, so cribbing or crib biting as behavior, so we we define it as um, so the horse is putting his incisor teeth on, an, on a protrusion and pulls back with the neck muscles and then creating a specific sound, a grunt. And so that is more of a, you know topographic definition where that makes it easier to talk about the same thing. Yes. Um, the specific, you know, the specific behavior and as it looks like. And of course, there are variations. So there are animals, horses that have learned to do it without um, applying pressure to the teeth. They can do it just as they are. In the air? Yeah, yeah. I think you would call that wind sucking, no? Yeah. It's very prevalent. So really many horses do it and it depends, let's say, um, the ones who are in competition, so sports horses, race horses, uh, eventers, uh, all these, you know, yeah, competition horses and race horses have a higher predisposition to develop it. And the problem with it is that there are many, there are many problems. The most obvious is that their teeth uh, are, what do you say? worn down they're worn down exactly i have just last weekend visited a friend and uh, one of the horses that is there 
he um, was actually has undergone a surgery, which is one of the treatments in uh, well quotation marks. And he's now 24, and the incisor tip of uh, his yeah, um, upper jaw is completely worn down. So he's almost on wow. his thumb. Yeah, he's 25, I think, something like that. Really bad. So uh, that's pretty obvious if you look at the behavior. So if they do that their whole life, that has an effect on the teeth. Yes. And it's been correlated with colics. Yeah, which for me is the even scarier because there's there's definitely a cause. Some people have said it was a cause, but it's not. that has not been proven at all. And there has been so many researches done around this issue. And really, at this point, it's still not clear what is causing the cribbing. But certainly, we know there's a correlation with colics. Um, but it's been researched and there has been, you know, management proposals made to help. Some of them more aversive than others. But to this day, it's still, it's still an issue and we still don't really know what to do to help these horses for sure. Which is why it's really, I can't wait to hear about your, your proposal today. And, and so some more background before we get to what you were doing with with your study. So some of the theories of what causes cribbing. So early weaning, is that one of them? And, and these are these are suggestions. So they're not none of them are proven. Is that correct? Well, there's been a lot of researches, though, on the subject because it's, you know, it has such a high cost some, you know, some of those horses are having surgery, um, colic, uh, sur surgical colics. Uh, some of those horses are, the colics are solved medically, but still, you know, when your horse is going to the hospital, it's a, it's a big cost emotionally and also financially. So it's been, and, and as, as um, Michaela said before, it's very prevalent. You know, I don't know of any barns where there is not at least one cribber. I've seen a lot of them die too. I mean, just in my boarding barn, a horse died this, um, this past season. He was a cribber and he had surgery and he started cribbing a few days after his surgery and he died um, not long after. So I'm, I'm sure a lot of our, uh, the people listening to us have seen cribbers. Yes, and and it's often if you ha if you're trying to sell a horse and it's a cribber, it can be really difficult because yeah, people, people don't yeah people, people don't, don't want, want it. and people sometimes are afraid that other horses will mimic it, which has not been my experience. But right, if you have a cribber and and you have to board your horse, it can be really uncomfortable because. The other people in the boarding barn don't want that horse around yeah. because of that fear. There's a bit of racism against those horses. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's a it's a major problem, and it's very resistant to change. I don't. I haven't had a lot of cribbers as in my client list, but there have been a few. And one of the things that I've I'd always said to 
to uh, the owners of these horses is, yeah, you probably could use clicker training to stop cribbing, but you'd have to be in the barn 24-7, and that's not realistic for most of us. Yeah, it's funny because, I mean, I have a cribber, <laughs> just let it out, but uh, certainly it's been, this is one of the reasons why it's such a important subject for me is because Woody is a cribber. And it's been a long, long journey for me because he's been in the hospital six times because of this. He's never had surgery, but I spent a lot of time in the earlier years. I've, you know, I'm touching wood now because he hasn't been in the hospital for a while, but as I've made many, many changes and I've read many of the studies and I've had many conversations with the veterinarian at the um, Montreal University uh, Hospital. And just to answer your, your questions about some of the hypothesis, one of the, because McGreevy has done, I find a lot of interesting researches on that subject. And he has proposed that there might be some form of underlying gastrointestinal dysfunction that would correlate with both the cribbing and the, the risk of colics, which, which I found interesting because, yes, the management certainly is, is an important part of it. I mean, that's how I have, I think, helped my horse. You know, I've increased exercise, decreased stabling. I've, he's, he's walked three times a day, uh, 15 minutes every day of the year. And one of the things that the major thing I think I have done is taking away all cribbing surfaces from his life. But I wonder about that too, because it has been said or proposed that the cribbing might have a function. You also tried the cribbing, you, 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 the collar. You yeah, tried I did, the cribbing collar and you had, under, under great duress, you tried it. Yeah, because I was I didn't want to try the uh, collar, but I was there was a lot of pressure from the veterinarians to put the collar on. And you know, after the fourth visit uh, to the hospital, I you know the pressure became really big for me to try the collar. And so I put the collar the on. The collar here. goes on because not everybody will know what a cribbing collar looks like. So the the collar is a device, and there are many there are different kinds of devices. But basically, the idea is that it it prevents the horse from actually performing the movement that allows him to crib. But what I have found is that, um, and I've seen a few cribbers with the collars. First of all, a lot of them will learn to crib higher because the color prevents them from uh, taking their head down, but they will learn to crib higher or like you said, Michaela, some of them will learn to crib in the air because they have such a need to crib. And and one of the, another one of, of McGreevy's um, Consta, what's the word in English? Uh, he, one of the things he, he, he researched was the motivation behind the cribbing and the pattern of motivation see, that they exhibited during the research indicated that the behavior was functional, that it had a function. And so the prevention of the cribbing could compromise 
the welfare of the animal. I mean, certainly for me, just putting that collar, it didn't feel good. I didn't want to do it before. And when he went to the hospital again with the collar, I decided that, okay, I've tried it. It doesn't work. He's still getting colic. Um, so I'm going to try something that felt less aversive to me. And what I have done is I've gone through great lengths to take all cribbing surfaces away outside, inside, so he cannot crib because there's nothing to crib on. I've also, I mean, this horse has weird behaviors in terms of he doesn't drink, I mean, at all. And I've tried all the tricks, you know, the, of course, the salt in the mouth and the jello flavors and the ghetto red flavors in the water and the water cold and hot and um, filtered and name it. I He doesn't drink. So now for years now, he's been having soups uh, many times a day to make sure that he has at least 22 liters of uh, water in him. But the cribbing, if I put back a cribbing surface, he'll want to crib. And the other thing that I have noticed, coming back to, you know, the question about can clicker training help this? What I'm finding is that anything where they anticipate food, for me anyway, for, for my horse, when the anticipation of food makes the cribbing worse. And so I don't know how to use clicker training to solve the cribbing. I, and, and maybe these studies could help us understand a way to do it. But you know when Susan Friedman says that you have to understand the function of the behavior before you can modify it. And I don't think at this day we really, really know what the behavior, what that behavior is for. You know, I've heard that maybe... There's irritation in the stomach, and so the cribbing helps to produce more saliva. And so that might be the function of the cribbing, to produce more saliva. But I don't know how we... It's, it's a complicated topic, for sure. <laughs> I'll, I'll conclude with this. Yes. So, so Michaela, why don't you jump back in with, with your study? Yeah, well, I um, I was, uh, well, because it's complicated, it's complex, it's interesting. So we had a, a cribber in our barn many years ago, and uh, he was also um, air cribbing. Actually, he would put his chin on Graya's back and crib on her back. Wow. Yeah, can imagine I did not like that a lot. And he, he used to be an inventor. And um, so he had all the criteria, you know, uh, competition horse, uh, lots of uh, low fiber, high carb diet and stress. And uh, so he ticked all the boxes. But then he came to us and he uh, he was well not retired, but retired from competition. So he was living in a herd. He had hay at libitum. He was ridden, you know, once a, once a week going for a very slow trail ride. He didn't travel anywhere so I and he kept gripping and I was just I just couldn't get it I say well you know we what I've learned and what the vets are saying we've done all of that and he keeps gripping and uh, that I don't know that kept always my interest and when I discovered um, 
you know more about uh, behavior analysis and and how all these sciences work and then i thought you know where the veterinarians we are at you know at the dead end we there have been a lot of research done which is true there has been because there's a lot of money because these are all competition horses race horses very valuable horses you know for people who count horses and money and um, so there was a lot of research but they go in circles they always say the same thing they research the same thing they're basically only reviews and and they come up it's really going in circles so that's why you know that, that I made the contact with the other science with the applied behavior analysis and there are people who show stereotypic behavior and well stereotypic behavior I define as um, a repetitive behavior um, in terms of topography so um, in people you would see children for example or adults rocking in a chair back and forth that would be defined as stereotypic stereotypic behavior because it shows a very low variability but actually it only becomes uh, termed stereotypic if it's a problem it's sort of inappropriate because many of us also show stereotypic behavior. So I know when I'm nervous, I start, um, I'm not even, I don't even need to be nervous, but there's some sort of tension. I start shaking my knees back and forth under the table. And I know many other people do that too. And that's actually also stereotypic behavior. It's just not a problem. And actually I'm thinking that many of our horses that are stabled, they show lots of these behaviors and we just don't really um, recognize it as stereotypic because it does not cause colic but it's actually you know also just a symptom of the of the very restricted life they have so anyway um, I, I found that very very interesting and and I wanted to see if taking um, the the research and, and knowledge that is available in the other science if we can not tap into that knowledge and apply it to a veterinary question and um, that's when I um, that's when I decided to, and I wanted to put it in an academic context. So I was looking for a way to study this, and um, I didn't want to do another graduate course. So I said, let me do a postgraduate course that allows me to do this study. So I subscribed uh, to the Veterinary of Edinburgh and did equine science master and with the sole purpose of doing um, the master's thesis uh, with <laughs> Professor um, Jesus Rosales Ruiz as my supervisor, which they accepted very strangely um, on the on the cribbing as my master project. And uh, I completed that 2017 last year. And because it was so interesting and um, we continue doing it, Jesus and I. What has been the basic structure of your study the first the first thing to um, establish is that cribbing is a an operant behavior because uh, in the veterinary field well they don't talk a lot about you know operant or respondent and all these because it's a different science so it's not really part of it but susan friedman talks a lot about these different models for behavior you know you have the uh, etology you have medical and you would have the behavior science so yes. obviously the vets will look at the medical model. So we look at gut dysfunction or some nervous pathology or 
something in the electrolyte system or metabolism or something like that. So we'd look at an organ failure in the widest sense. And that's why the studies all, you know, focus on, you know, finding, um, finding a drug or curing a disease. So the approach is on, on, yeah, there's a gut dysfunction. So we have to get the, the, the intestines working again or something like that. So it's, it's focusing on, on a pathology that needs to be fixed which is inherent in veterinary medicine. It's part of the system. So obviously you look for those solutions. Then the other model is the etology. So you would look at equine behavior as it would be in theory in the wild, which we don't mm -hmm. have anymore, but you'd say, okay, horses need to graze so many hours. They need to be in groups. They need to eat hay. Are there cribbers in the wild? I don't think so. I've, from what I read, no. But even then, I mean, the, the, it doesn't help us in our problem because our horses are very far away from anything that is wild. And mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. so the, the solutions from that field would come, would look at, you know, giving them hay ad libitum, uh, keep them in groups. And, and these are all good solutions. These are all that all horses should experience, whether they're gripping or not. Um, but none of this has helped. Nope. Because, you know, the cribber owners, we've tried everything they say. And, and there's a point where you feel like, am I not doing enough? You know, it's, it's hard. I mean, uh, it can be hard because you're doing all these things. And at the end of the day, you, you're still afraid every time you see your horse lie down, you know that, oh, is he just lying down or is he having a colic? Yes. So the owners are there and they don't know what to do. That's right. Now, if you look at it from, you know, from a behavior science, science approach, and especially, you know, what we learned from, from Jesus to look at it on as a constructive, in a constructive approach, constructive mindset. So instead of saying, you know, there's something wrong with my animal, you would think, okay, the animal is doing it and it for a reason. So it's, the animal does it because that's what it needs to do. And it's really, really, really important to him. Exactly. So we can't uh, just take it away or cure some no. you know, organ because or anything. Because if, if we take it away, he will find another way and it will be worse. He'll, do, he'll be even more motivated to do it. So um, what the first thing to establish then was to, to show... Because in a way, the study I'm doing is, is trying to get the sciences together, trying to merge, or maybe not merging, um, to put in contact the veterinary science and the behavior analysis science, just to you know create some contact surface where maybe some diffusion can take place. So that's a bit how I see it. Because if we can show that, and, and we did, that cribbing is a operant behavior, so it's learned, and it's not some sort of instinct that, you know, the horse can't resist and is just doing it because some organ is telling the horse to do it, but it's actually a learned behavior that also opens the door to intervention. So if I, if I accept that crib biting is uh, an operant behavior, is a learned behavior, I can use the tool set of operant practices, operant approaches to approach the behavior. So it opens a whole new world of things we can try. That's right. It does. Whereas right. it on the does. veterinary side, we have exhausted, we have, we run out of fantasy. It's, we've done everything we can think of 
and nothing has helped. So we have to open a new door and this is sort of my... Um, and you're not, you're not necessarily saying that there isn't a dysfunction, but you're just saying there might be another toolbox that we can use to help these horses. I don't see it as a dysfunction because it has a function for the animal. So, well, when I say, you know, as a, a pathology, there might, there might be a pathology or there might not be a pathology, but this will not be our focus. It will be something else that we can work with to help the animal. Yes, but it's also not taken out of the blue because there has been a lot of research and they could not, uh, these researchers have not found an organ function. That's right. So it's not that I I'm just know. coming up and say, oh, let's just ignore all of this that, you know, it's, it's probably not going to be an organ. No, they have, this research has already been done and we could not pinpoint yeah. a particular Absolutely. pathology. So it must yeah. be something else. We have to look elsewhere and that's what you've been doing. Yeah. So how did you begin and how do you determine that cribbing is operant? So what we did initially is I did a um, 24-hour observation. So actually, in the end, it was many more hours than 24 hours, but to get actually a recording complete for 24 hours. And I did that actually for two horses. And uh, so I had the camera on and I used a wildlife surveillance camera that starts recording when there's movement. Mm -hmm. Since the horses were confined in a box, they were basically never out of uh, camera reach. Unfortunately for them, but it was good for me. So, um, so I did a pattern of, um, of their cribbing during 24 hours. And then I could also see when they were fed and when they were taken out. And so I tracked that. And I could see for um, Blondie, who's uh, the horse I'm, I'm doing most of the work with. She, she was, when I started, three-year-old quarter horse mare that... Um, yeah, anyway, she's, she's in, in, in that stable. And for her, we saw that her cribbing was similar to what you described, uh, Dominique. So when she got, when the hay was delivered to the, the whole stable, her cribbing increased. So it was very much linked to feeding hay. Mm -hmm. But interestingly for the other horse, he, he's, uh, he was um, a year, two years older, a PRE gelding. For him, it was the opposite. So he actually, when he got the hay, he stopped cribbing completely and the same for, for um, um, grains. When he had to eat, he would stop cribbing and focus on eating. Hmm. And hmm. he would crib during the times, you know, during the night when they don't get anything, nobody's around. Hmm. Um, hmm. He had a peak like 2 3 a.m. in the morning. That's interesting. So they were completely opposite, which, you know, proved the fact that we need to look at the individual. Right. So they had two completely different patterns. So I, I did not continue with the PRE. So I work, continue working with the quarter horse mare. And um, after that set, so we, we um, realized. Well, just, just for people, PRE being purebred, uh, pure, puras espanol, I don't, it's the, um, it's the Spanish horse. Yeah, exactly. What many people call uh, incorrectly Andalusian. Yeah. It's the old way. Very, very handsome boy. He was very sweet horse. Anyway, so the blondie is the one I'll be continued talking about. Yeah. Uh, the quarter horse mare. And so we, as a next step, since we linked it to the feeding, we did a couple of experiments where we shifted the time of feeding. We would feed, normally they are fed at 6.30 in the morning. So I arranged with the person who feeds them in the morning to give her hay at 6 
in the morning, then the next time at 7 and the next day at 8. Uh, so at different times of day. And her cribbing pattern shifted together with the hay. Wow. So it's not linked to just some internal, you know, internal clock or internal, uh, now it's time to grip or a constant cribbing, whatever. It's not something that comes from internal. It comes from the time of feeling. So for her, it was the anticipation of the hay when she started hearing the noise of the groom who was preparing the meals. Probably already before, probably already when he started uh, driving in. Yeah. So even uh, already half an hour before anything happened in the stable. So so for her, um, we linked it to anticipation of, of hay arriving. Mm -hmm. And then we did, uh, can I even remember everything? We did a couple of, um, so ABAB designs where um, I would, you know, be around Oh, actually, we, we did it also. Well, I'm not going to talk exactly what I did in what order, but the thing is that we applied um, the ABAB approach to test different conditions. So we would we would try to establish whether my presence in the barn aisle would have an effect on the cribbing or whether feeding of hay, uh, if I give her hay and how I give hay and if I would um, interaction with her would uh, either you know increase or decrease the cribbing and all that in an in an um, in a reversal design so you don't need a lot of time you can just do 10 minutes each each um, condition so 10 minutes 10 minutes 10 minutes 10 minutes and then you repeat it the next day you do that three times and then maybe you change what you are testing can you give us an example of one of the things you tested so people can visualize it? Yes, for example, I would test, um, first of all, I need, because since I was present in the, in the barn aisle of doing the experiments, I needed to find out whether I'm the one that increases the cribbing or decreases the cribbing. So I would need to go in, just not do anything, just be visible for her. And then I would go out so she doesn't see me. And I would come back and I would go out again. So nothing and changes. You, and what did you find? That um, I think actually when I was there, it was decreasing a little bit. So I was not stressing her at least. <laughs> it's well, a good it, sign. Well, it may not be. It may not be stress because you know my. I find, and I would have to 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 do the study, and I will actually. But I find when I'm there, I have a feeling that. As I said, I've, I've taken out the cribbing uh, surfaces. The only thing that he will crib on is the little, you know, when you leave the door open, if you have a stall guard, he will crib on that. So as soon as he cribs, I close the, the door. But I find when I'm there, and my horse has barely any stress. I mean, he, he doesn't compete. All we do is clicker training. He loves being with me. I mean, when he is walked, because as I said, he's walked many times every day by a groom and he sees me, he wants to be with me. And I know he enjoys, I don't even ride him because, you know, I don't want to stress him. So his, he's got this big box. He's with friends outside and he doesn't have hay all day because he would get really, really, he's already a bit chubby. So I have, unfortunately, because I would prefer to give him free hay, but it's, the vet doesn't want me to. So when I'm there, 
I feel it's more, again, the anticipation of having the treats that will increase the cribbing, not stress. I'm, I, don't, I really don't have the impression that I'm stressing him, but it, he's anticipated and he wants to play. And if I go play with the others, also, he will, I will feel that the cribbing will increase because he wants me back with him. So it's, it's not necessary. And I find the stress thing to be something that will make the owners feel wrong. You know, oh, I must be stressing him. I'm, I'm not good or, you know, it's, there's something. Anticipation of a good thing is stress. Yeah. I think we would have to define stress. Yeah, we would. Because for me, there's a difference between stress and excitement or arousal. It's not exactly the same. But yeah, I mean, I just wanted to make that nuance because, you know, your presence or the presence of, of a person could increase cribbing and yet it might not be, stress might not be exactly the word. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't have said that, but that was not the, the point. I mean, the point was that I have to be um, excluded as causing affecting the the cribbing if not it would dilute my results and i cannot use the data so i have to know yes. what my effect is on the horse so you would have to start that first of all that is part of your as, and you were asking before how do you know whether you increase one criterion or more that's one yeah. of the ways to do it so if i'm the experimenter and i'm going to be there because i'm interacting then i have to know First of, before I'm interacting, I have to know what is my effect just being there, right? Yeah. This way I can increase or change one criterion at a time. So the first... So what do you do if you know that you have an effect on the cribbing? You can't eliminate yourself from the, your horse's life. Well, you have to be creative. So we'll see. <laughs> but in this case, okay. I didn't need to because she was fine with me being there. So I didn't, it, it was not a problem. So I had to establish that first. Mm -hmm. And then you would test, um, for example, interacting with her. So if I'm talking to her versus just standing. So I'm not going in with her. I'm just standing in front of her box and be talking and maybe scratching as well as I can, you know, she can also move away. It's a little bit of uh, interaction without being intrusive versus just being in the, in the barn aisle doing other things. So you would, you would check. Did that make a difference in the, in this case? Did it? No. And there was no food involved at this point. You would interact, but not give treats. No food will come later on. So mm -hmm. um, when you establish that, and then I would see if I'm I started going in um, and if I'm in with her, I would scratch her and interact and then I would go away, you know, as I'm leaving, what effect does this have on the cribbing? So for example, so you, you test all these conditions, then you start maybe feeding from the outside or you just, we actually, we started just moving hay around without feeding her. And then mm -hmm. I would feed her and move hay around, feed her or just interact without food. So these are just, um, all the conditions that I tested over time. That's a lot, huh? It's very exhaustive. Yeah. We've also done some clicker training. So when Jesus told me you can do clicker training, yay, targeting, yay, <laughs> finally. <laughs> but he uh, removed that pretty quickly again. 
<laughs> so it was maybe a small uh, boost for me, so I can finally train. Did it have an effect? Did you did you see an increase or decrease in the? In no, it was pretty amazing because when I only started working with her, I did a targeting session um, only once, and whenever I gave gave her a streets, I used small carrot pieces, coins, mm -hmm. carrot coins, and as soon as she got a carrot in her mouth, she would go cribbing, mm -hmm. and I stopped immediately. And actually, when I told Jesus what had happened, he used then the carrot as a start button for cribbing. So some of the conditions were I would feed her a carrot and start scratching and see whether we can interrupt the cribbing, which worked for two sessions or so, and then it came back. But I could actually feed her and scratch and she would not crib. Mm -hmm. But then recently, I, when I did the clicker training, I could actually feed her two kilograms of carrot coins and she would not crib during the session, mm -hmm. but she would crib in between sessions. So when I would change condition, there's a short break. I have to set up the camera. I have to refill my bag. So she would for 10 minutes, she would get, I think we had a reinforcement rate of seven per minute, per 10 min in, in 10 minutes. So it was almost one carrot coin per minute and she did not crib. And only cribbed in the in the break, and I thought that was pretty amazing because she could eat two kilos of carrots without cribbing. Mm -hmm. So I was very hopeful after that. I said, "Oh, there's you know there's something we can do. It works." But she cribbed in between. So when I took my focus off her, she went back to crib. And yeah, so I did some clicker training, and then we went back to some yeah with the hay feeding hay. Uh, and also there, if, if there's more interaction uh, as I'm feeding the hay, it would the cribbing would go down and also feeding, you know, little amounts of hay. So basically you are changing the pattern of how she would normally eat her hay. So it's a different, you know, antecedent. It's a different condition for her, different stimulus control conditions um, that do not cue the same cribbing and this is where we are now focusing on and trying to change that these antecedent conditions to to interrupt the chain that leads to the cribbing for her so that's that's the next thing to do so you would interrupt the chain at a moment prior to the cribbing exactly and, and interrupting that means just, i mean that obviously does not mean that i hold her halter so she can't no 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 <laughs> right so the thing is to change the the, the cues that normally cue cribbing. Norm so she gets her hay in her mouth. That's almost her cue to go crib. Oh, the other thing maybe I should say, which was really interesting during the study, was that also contradicts many of the veterinary um, approaches to this is that she, uh, and proves that it's an operant behavior, is that she changed her cribbing pattern during the study. And I have that on video. Because initially she, she cribs on her water trough she has a you know a self-feeding water trough automatic water yeah. trough and um, so she would pull there and crib there and at some point the the owner tries to find solutions so he he got this and we call them jolly balls do you know them so toy yeah, balls yeah. Mm -hmm. so he hang it up just above the water trough so if she started cribbing on that <laughs> no no she was no. she was I don't know. I think I don't really know what he thought about it. Anyway, he, that's what he did. So she needed to, in order, order to drink, so in order to crib, she needed to push it to the side and then crib. <laughs> right. So what she did was after that, 
she changed her cribbing pattern. So what she does now is she, before she, she takes um, a mouthful of hay, then she ducks her nose into the water and then cribs. And that changed. <laughs> and I have that change on video. She has not done that before. And she did that because of the jolly ball. Yes, and the jolly ball is no longer there, but she, she has changed her cribbing pattern. So it's not an inherent, automatic, you know, instinctive behavior whatsoever. It's operant behavior that she adjusted to the environment. And now that the ball is gone, she has kept that. She's kept that. That's how she cribs. She has to dip her nose into the water and then she cribs. So she basically, she, she's watering her hay. Yeah. But that's not it's the function, cool. I think. It's uh, because of the ball, she changed the pattern. And... You know, that gives a lot of hope because if you can change that, then you can also change before. In the same change, you go earlier and change something there. Which is great because, you know, you 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 don't want them to crib. So if you if if where you intervene can prevent the cribbing, because it's very scary when they do. Well, for me anyway, every each instance of cribbing is a scary thing for me. So to be able to go earlier sounds like a plan that I would love to put into motion. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Still testing. It's, it's really interesting. Really, really interesting. Because it gives hope. Yeah, exactly. And it gives ideas, not just for the cribbing, but for other situations that people may be dealing with with their horses where they just feel stuck you know, where the normal changes in management haven't solved a particular problem and it allows us all to become citizen scientists that research does not just sit in the province of the academic scientists we can all set up aba studies with our horses and it exactly. and it and it doesn't even have to be around something that that is you know, a major health issue like the cribbing. It can be just something simple and fun. It can be something in the training. Let me let me see what type of, what approach to training do I want to use to teach this particular behavior? Let me test this. Let me switch and try a different way. Let me go back. Which way does my horse seem to learn this particular skill faster? Yeah, and when yeah. I did the course with uh, Kay Lawrence in her... Um tackle course, the online course she, she does, she, initially she would send us out and do the these experiments. I mean, it wasn't in an ABA design, but she would basically say, okay, what are you normally feeding? What are your treats? And then go and test, test different, not only different types, but also different volumes. So I would go out, you know, with uh, grains and, and use, you know, like three, four grains of uh, oats versus maybe 20 oats and see what the difference was. And Gaia did not like the four oats. She thought that was rather an insult. <laughs> or, you know, a carrot, you a big chunk versus a small chunk, small one, uh, or hay or whatever. So actually before, you know, Kay would always go test it, you know, or what's your data. So exactly what you were saying, we can test it. Do not just, you know, take over whatever you've been told, ask your horse. Your horse may be different from your fellow trainer's horse. And so what would you recommend as, because you must be really good at record keeping. I mean, because of your training and your schooling and, but for someone in their barn who wants to maybe start doing this and 
there has to be some kind of record keeping, obviously, because how would you, what would you suggest as a minimum, at least? Video camera. Video camera. If you don't have somebody, you know, with you all the time, which probably nobody has, um, video, definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, and then at home, as you analyze it, you know, I use a, an Excel sheet and it can be very simple. You just do a column with the what you are um, observing and then also observe other things that may not be relevant but later on when you are looking for patterns it may become relevant so you have a column for little notes yes little notes or other other things for example if you have your herd in a um, your horses in a group you know you may also want to write down for example the position of other horses where they're close where they're far when was the feeding you know what else happened did the horse leave did the horse come back when did the horse go for training what type of training i mean you can make it as complex as you want or simple depending on the, what was the weather that day exactly what did you eat for breakfast yeah. Yeah. You know, how hot was it it depends on how 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 uh, much effort you want to put into it of course but uh, the more details you have the better so i've seen some of your data from the the cribbing study and it's really fascinating to look at the patterns would you be willing to share with us a couple of your your graphs from from Blondie's study, just so people can see what? Well, I can share the the ones I used for the master thesis. The other ones I cannot yeah. because I will be publishing that certainly. Right, right, right. No, but the ones in the ma and and we don't need we don't need to see them all, but just to give people an idea of what the data can look like. Because it is very visual. Yeah, I think the ones with the carrot are really nice. When I feed the carrot and uh, how the scratching. So I feed a carrot and then the graph goes from zero goes up to 20. And then I would start scratching and the cribbing goes back down to one or two. That one is really and nice. Is, and is there is there something that I could find on the internet as a graph app that could help me do that? What do you use for a graph, for graphic? I will use Excel. Um, there's a very good paper. Oh, you use Excel too for the graph. Yes. Right. Well, the good thing about uh, single subject design is they use very simple graphs and you don't need any statistics. So it's really, really simple. I like that. There is a paper, um, Visual Analysis in Single Research, uh, which is really good. But I have to check if it's um, available, publicly available, or if it's... Um, in a journal that is so if that's available then you can put that up as well that would be great because it explains the graphs and how to read the graphs mm -hmm. and i've also come across a publication it's meant for students on how to produce these graphs but i'll have to find that back that that was available because it's for it's for students right right so these things can could help maybe yeah that's great i want to do a study <laughs> Good. We need more. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that's why we wanted to do the podcast, because hopefully this will inspire an, a, a lot of people to go out to the barn and set up their own studies. And we'd love to hear. Uh, so we've got uh, on the equosity.com, there's a way to send comments to us. And if people are going out and doing some studies, we would love to hear and get feedback on that. And if any of you are part of the forum that we set up for the webinars, that would be a great place to share some of the studies that you're doing and, and looking at 
what are some of the questions that people, in fact, that would be really great to look at what are some of the questions that people are asking. So if, if other people have horses that are showing similar behaviors, that they can run these studies and share their findings and we'll all learn together. That'd be really exciting. Well, actually, there is one person who has contacted me and uh, who also has a cribber and wants to find out more. So actually, I'm helping her to, to do the same type of analysis. So she's already done um, the 24-hour analysis and we looked at, you know, what's the pattern of her horse. And now the next step would also be to have do these um, single subject designs if she comes back to me. But it's a lot of work, I have to say that, you know, in the beginning, because analyzing these videos is, is a lot of work because you have to, you cannot just look at them and do something else at the same time. You need to be watching and then you need a counter. So, you know, remember the things that they have in the airplanes to count the passengers? Yes. Because soon, very soon you will mix up the numbers. So have I been at 12 already or not? So you need these mechanical counters so you don't have to redo all the videos and count the, the cribbing. And otherwise you need only the camera, uh, a computer and the counter. And, and, and your time and dedication. And then you can do it. Well, you know, when it's an issue like cribbing, I know I, for a long, long time, for over a year, I, I was, uh, I had a camera in, in the horse's box and in the arena because he would sleep in the arena with his friends because he, he needed to be moving all the time, even in the winter. I spent so many hours looking at these videos. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it gave me a general sense of what was happening. But in this case, it's much more structured. You counter the frequency, you write down the notes. And so I think this can go much farther. And to have the operant, because that's the big difference. When I was looking at this before, for years, I was looking at it from the veterinarian and medical glasses. Whereas what you're proposing today is that there might be another pair of glasses that I can put on when I'm looking at this and it's operant behavior. And how can that's I right. influence the behavior with what we know in behavior analysis? And that's a completely different outlook. Yeah. And so it'll be great to have you on the podcast when you're done with the other part of the study where you're trying to interrupt the chain before the cribbing happens, because that's where we all want to get to. I hope that will happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you absolutely have to let us know and come back to, even if, you know, we can learn no matter what, you know, you may, you may not get to exactly where you want to, but it's always learning and it's always good to be more aware. Yes. And you can learn a lot, actually. I mean, for people doing their, observing their own horses to just do videos, even without a specific purpose, just watch what they are doing when you're not around. Oh, absolutely. I've learned all the management that I have put together was based on that video that I took. And a lot of it was happening at night during, during the night. But even things, you know, you're not, even if you don't have anything in particular, I was, I had put on this type of camera years ago. Uh, my horses were standing only the two of them together. Mm -hmm. And uh, Graya is also a little bit on the chubby side. Now she's good, but she used to be a little bit uh, overweight. 
And the other one, the Arabian cross is, you know, always lean and thin. You understood why? <laughs> I looked at the night videos and I was laughing and laughing because Asphalot was going out of the paddock, you know, and starting the camera because the movement starts the video. He would go out and he would come back and he would go out and he would come back. And he would go out and he would come back. And Graia has not moved a single centimeter <laughs> the whole time. That was so funny. Yeah. So you learn a lot by watching these videos. It, it, it can get, it can be pretty, um, you know, when, because right now I don't have that anymore because the horses are not in my barn anymore. So it's, I can, but I had that camera on real time. It can be pretty. Um, how should I don't know what word I should use, but addictive. I mean, you know, it was right there next all day. I was looking at the horse and, you know, I was phoning in the barn because, but I learned a lot, but it was intense. <laughs> well, we're, we will definitely have to have you come back periodically oh, yeah. to report on this study and to share more with just the whole background behind the analysis of behavior and the how do we explore behavior as we're trying to understand more clearly what the function of what we're seeing is so that we can create interventions that are effective and humane, which is in the long run what we're all looking for. It's very neat. So I think we've been talking for quite a long while now. So it's a good time, I think, to draw this conversation to a close and to thank you, Michaela, immensely for joining us and sharing this with us. And until next time, just to wish everybody a great deal of fun with their training. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for joining us. If you want to conduct your own citizen scientist experiments and you want to learn more about this type of single subject design studies that Michaela has been describing, she's shared with us several links to resources. We've put them up in the library section of the equosity.com website. To access the links, just go to the members section on the homepage. And if you enjoy learning about the science that sits behind the training, be sure to check out our webinars. Our next webinar is with Dr. Susan Friedman on September 29th, 2018 at 1.30 Eastern Time. We'll be recording this webinar, so if you can't attend the live event, you can still listen to it afterwards. We also recorded the webinars we did with Ken Ramirez and Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz. If you want to listen to any of these webinars, visit our online store. And be sure to register for our upcoming webinar with Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz. That's on November 11th, and it will be again at 1.30 Eastern Time. So, until next time, train well, laugh often, and goodbye for now.